Chapter 7, as we come to study it this morning, and our theme this morning is God's judgment prevails. God's judgment prevails. Well, more than ever before, it's very important that when some big news story hits the headlines, that we check our sources before we believe it. Whether it's a story about what's happening in a war zone, or something far more trivial, like a footballer reportedly wanting to leave the club and move somewhere else. Increasingly, we have to be very careful that we are turning to reliable sources so that we don't get a story badly wrong. And it's the same in our friendship circles, in our family circles, and indeed even in our church life, that someone not in possession of all the facts can mislead us about what has really happened. That's one of the reasons why the book of Genesis was written by Moses under the direction and power of God the Holy Spirit. To give God's people the true story in the face of a lot of what we might call fake news. Moses couldn't have written the book of Genesis much before 1300 BC. More than a thousand years after the flood and thousands of years after the creation of the world and the earliest days of human existence. And by the time Moses wrote Genesis there were already lots of versions of a flood story in the world. In fact, virtually every ancient civilization in history has a flood story. One of the most famous was a poem called the Gilgamesh Epic. It was from the land that would become known as Babylon. Another version was the Sumerian flood story. And in these versions of the flood, uh, the gods, not one all-powerful god, but multiple gods, caused the flood to come for selfish, capricious reasons. To get one over on the other gods. To show which god was the most powerful. To just be a bit nasty to human beings. But in most of these other flood stories, the gods lose control of the flood once it starts. They regret it. They become frightened by it. They realize that they've made a huge mess. The hero in these other flood stories is not a god, it's a man. A much more impressive and powerful man than Noah in the Bible. And the heroic man in most of these stories builds a boat into which the animals come and they stay in the boat for a prolonged period of time. In the Gilgamesh epic it's six days and six nights. And then the rain stops and they come out of the boat and they offer sacrifices to the gods who are very impressed by the heroic efforts of the man. So you can see some uh, similar aspects to the stories. And these stories, friends, were, they were widely known and believed for hundreds of years before the book of Genesis was ever written, and even for hundreds of years afterwards. Now, just by the way, you should ask yourself, is it more likely that this worldwide event, some version of which has existed in virtually every human civilization, Uh, over the course of the centuries? Is it more likely that it never happened at all? Or is it more likely that the flood did happen and there are various exaggerated or misguided or mistaken versions of the story? Genesis exists, friends, because the flood did happen and Genesis gives us the true version of the story. And we need to know it and believe it Because, as I mentioned last week, there are still false and mistaken versions of 
of the history of this world being widely circulated today. Stories about a big bang or a meteor destroying the dinosaurs. Stories about macroevolution taking place over millions if not billions of years. Stories about how a global worldwide flood is impossible and that so-called scientific theories, some of which are just pure speculation, are all we should trust in. We're not to feel sorry for the book of Genesis. We're not to be embarrassed by it. Some Christians do feel sorry for the book of Genesis or are embarrassed by it. We're not to be like that. It's not that, the Genesis, it's not that Genesis was the only story out there and then that pesky Charles Darwin came along and suddenly no one believes Genesis anymore. No, the book of Genesis came into a world already full of all kinds of false stories about human beings and where we came from and what happened. And Genesis is a gracious gift to us. It's God's truth about what really happened. And so Genesis 7 tells us about the arrival of the flood and it makes clear that the flood was neither an accident nor was it a moment of human heroics. Instead, the flood was the moment when the holiness and the justice of God prevailed triumphed over human sin which had ruined the world so let's think first of all this morning about God's creation preserved God's creation preserved Uh, this chapter emphasizes the arrival of God's judgment and, and the destruction that came upon the planet obviously but it also tells us friends how God preserved a remnant he he rescued his creation And we see that, of course, in the fact that the animals were brought into the ark. Genesis 6, verses 19 to 20, tell us how God had commanded Noah to take two of every kind of animal and bird into the ark with him. And then here in chapter 7, verse 2, if you look at it, God gives additional instructions regarding the animals. He says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Verse 3 mentions seven pairs of the birds also. Uh, And the reason for that, in part, as we'll see in chapter 9, is so that there would be enough animals to sacrifice once the flood was over. But notice, friends, God intended for all of his creation to begin again after the flood, not just human beings. All creation was to be preserved and to have the opportunity to begin again. Genesis 7, in fact, the whole flood account very deliberately echoes Genesis 1 and 2. It's reminding us of how things were in the very beginning and it's hinting to us that there is a new beginning coming. Genesis 1 verse 21, for example, says, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. And we see similar language here in Genesis 7. Uh, all the animals, all the creeping things, birds of the heavens and so forth. And just notice in Genesis 1 verse 22 it says God blessed them. I said last week this is what Genesis is all about. It's about creation and blessing. God creates. He creates the world and the creatures and the human beings with the intention of blessing all of it. Sin came in and disrupted that blessing, but man's sin is not going to have 
is not going to remove God's blessing entirely from the world. And so just days before the first rain of the flood falls, friends, God supernaturally brings the animals to Noah, just as he brought the first animals to Adam so that Adam could name them. Yes, the flood is coming. Deserved judgment is coming. But unlike in those mythical stories, God is in full control and he has a plan and a purpose for every part of his creation. The Psalms often remind us of God's blessing, his care and compassion for his creation. Psalm 145 verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 104 verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They give drink to every beast of the field. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 16. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted and them the birds build their nests. Point is, friends, God did not stop caring for creation when he sent the flood to destroy the world. He preserved his creation. He began again with it. He kept a blessing for it. God cares about every part of his creation. And of course that means that we too, as his stewards and his image bearers on this earth, we too should care about his creation. We should be curious and concerned for the world in which we live. Boys and girls, you should be very thankful to live in a part of the world as beautiful as County Down. Someday you'll, you'll probably realise uh, even better how privileged you are to live in this part of the world. Some of you can look out your bedroom window and see mountains and birds. Maybe rabbits or foxes or badgers run around the land near your house. I'm sure the farmers aren't so keen on the foxes and, badger, uh, foxes and badgers. But all of that, boys and girls, all of that is God's creation. He sustains it. He cares for it. He has given it to us to explore and enjoy. And of course, in preserving the animals along with Noah and his family friends, God is teaching us here something crucially important about the future of our planet even still, about the future of our own existence. Because another judgment is coming in the future. You know that, don't you? The Lord Jesus will return and bring a final judgment to this world. We'll think more about that shortly. But when Christ has done that, he will recreate the world. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming, the Bible tells us. And we will live again on this, new, on this earth made new, on this land made new, with these, with these trees and, and these skies made new, and even animals made new, enjoying God's blessing. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now there are some various interpretations of that passage, even amongst Reformed preachers and commentators, but I believe the best interpretation of that is that it's giving us a picture of the new earth, 
this world after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that passage I just read comes after a passage about the final judgment. So again, there's the pattern, judgment to come and then new creation to come. <coughs> if, the, if the new world that God is going to make in the future, if it's really going to be even better than the world we're in now, well, how could it have less stuff in it than the world that we live in now? Animals and trees and rivers and beauty of all sorts and kinds. And friends, here in the story of the flood, God shows us his ongoing concern for all of his creation, past, present, and future. Yes, human beings are most important to God. We bear his image. We're, we're made in a different way from everything else. But the rest of God's creation is important to him as well. And surely this would have been such a comfort to Noah and his family on the day that they boarded the ark. As much as it would have been dark and uncomfortable and smelly with all those animals around them, nonetheless, those animals were a visible guarantee to Noah that eventually a new world was coming. Otherwise, there's not much point getting on a boat full of smelly animals. And likewise, for us, friends, we're right to take pleasure and delight in the, in the beautiful creation of our world. And we should look forward with great excitement to an even better world still to come. You only think you've seen beautiful natural scenery. What do you see the scenery in the new earth? <clears throat> you only think you've seen the most beautiful colours filling the sky on a spring morning or a spring evening. Or a, a really good walk in a forest or up a mountain. Wait till you see the world to come. Paul says in Romans 8, 22 to 23, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, he's saying creation itself, the created world is longing for renewal, for redemption, for, for, for new life to be breathed into it. Paul's saying that there will be a, a sort of a resurrection, if you like, of the created world as well as the, the human world. The animals on the ark were God's reassurance to Noah. God will preserve all of his creation. And likewise for us, friends, we know that he will eventually make our whole world new and perfect once again. So God's creation preserved. But secondly, and this is perhaps an even more crucial, uh, crucial lesson from the text, God's judgment prevails. God's judgment prevails. The flood was a unique event, of course, in the history of the world. Uh, the word used for flood in Genesis 6 to 9 appears almost nowhere else in the Old Testament except for the psalm that we sang earlier, Psalm 29. And that in itself emphasizes to us that nothing like this has been seen or, or will ever be seen again. And it's important that we grasp exactly what happened when the flood came. Notice chapter 7 verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So forty days of rain. But notice also verse 11. Uh, we get more detail about what happened here. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, 
Notice, by the way, precise dates to show that this was an actual historical event. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So what that tells us, friends, is that not only did rain fall from above, but water came gushing up from below. That huge caverns appeared on the earth's surface and, uh, and, these, and these sort of underground waterways, if you like, burst through and began to cover the earth. And so there was water coming down from above as well as water coming up from below. One preacher says the huge underground subterranean reservoirs erupted. Splits appeared in the earth's crust and the ocean basins divided and millions and millions of gallons came spilling out onto the earth's surface. Some writers as well talk about uh, a cloud of vapor being torn in two in the, in the earth's upper atmosphere. Uh, and there's good reason to believe that the entire atmosphere of the earth has been drastically changed ever since what happened when the flood came. And what we're having described for us here, friends, is a, is a huge reversal, a drastic reversal of God's creation of the world. Genesis 1 verse 6 described for us God separating the waters above and below the earth's surface. Well, here now at the flood, God brings the waters back together again and the earth's surface disappears. This was not 40 days and nights of what we would just call a bad shower. This was 40 days and nights of violent, gushing, unstoppable water surging both from below and above, entirely controlled and directed by God. And I can't really understand some Christians, well-meaning, sincere, genuine though they are, but some Christians simply write off this section of Genesis. They say, well, this just isn't possible. A flood could not possibly have destroyed the whole planet. And they give a whole list of reasons. Well, friends, we, we believe in a God who created scientific laws and so can override scientific laws whenever he wishes. If you believe in a God who spoke the world into existence, who took on human flesh, who in that human flesh walked on the surface of water commanded storms to cease, who was raised from the dead. Why is a worldwide supernatural yet literal flood so difficult to accept? And of course there are, there's, there's more we could get into about exactly what processes God used in the natural world to bring about this flood. There are good resources available to you for that. Uh, I'll maybe post some on the WhatsApp group, Creation Ministries, Answers in Genesis and so on. They, they get into more detail about the flood and about the, uh, the, the geological impact of the flood and so on. But ultimately, friends, we believe this by faith. We believe in a God who is far beyond our understanding, who can do what he likes when he likes to the world that he has created. But more importantly than that, Notice the language, the way in which Moses repeatedly describes what God was doing through the flood. Notice, for example, verse 17. The waters continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. Verse 18. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. There's a verse that doesn't leave any room to believe in a localized flood. Verse 20, it's the same word again. The waters prevailed. And once more in verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. In total, that word prevailed is used five times. It's actually a military word. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe people winning victories in the battlefield. Exodus 17 verse 11 uh, says the Israelites prevailed over their enemies. So why is that word used here? Because, friends, it's emphasizing to us that this is God's judgment getting the victory over man's sin. The waters were the means God used to wash clean a world ruined by man's wickedness. One writer says the first 40 days were the heavy rains followed by 100 days of the water's triumph. And even the way it's written in the original, and we'll think a bit more about this tonight, but the way it's in the language there, it's just as if it's describing the tide rising and rising and rising till eventually the waters have triumphed and there's nothing left. One writer says, we see water everywhere as though the world had reverted to its primeval state at the dawn of creation when the waters of the deep submerged everything. Nothing remained of the teeming life that had burst forth upon the earth. Nothing was left. Nothing. And no one was left except the eight souls in the ark. No one had believed the preaching of Noah. Jesus himself said people were eating and drinking and getting married and going about their normal lives right up until the moment the rains came. No one wanted to accept that their sinful, lustful, selfish, violent lifestyles were going to just be ended in an instant, met with God's judgment. But they were. They were. Imagine the nervous glances when the first drops of rain began to fall. Imagine those drunken smiles suddenly turning to shock and horror as surging torrents came up from beneath their feet ripping the land apart. Imagine as those 40 days or longer went on, the mad scrambling of people climbing up those high mountains, clambering on top of one another, desperate to escape, but doomed to die. God's judgment prevailed. Verse 16 ends with an incredibly sobering statement. Look at the end of verse 16. Describing Noah and his family going into the ark, it says, The Lord shut him in. The hand of the Lord closed the door of Noah's ark. And that wasn't just an act of grace towards Noah, friends. That was an act of judgment on the rest of the world. Noah didn't have to shut the door on his neighbors his fellow human beings. Noah wasn't the one who had to decide when their time was up or whether he should let them board the ark after all. God made that decision. God's judgment prevailed. 
And if you're not a Christian today here this morning in Dremore High School or listening in online, if you have not yet repented of your sin, you are headed for a judgment as awful, as traumatizing, as final as the judgment in the days of the flood. In fact, in many ways, we could say it will be worse for you than it was for the souls who drowned in the flood. And everything seems so solid and immovable and just everything going on the way it always does perhaps right now in your life. And you think nothing could topple my house. I'm a healthy, happy person. No one could touch me or my possessions or my family. I have to warn you, as suddenly as it all changed in Noah's day, just as suddenly one day it will change for you. Do I really need to tell you about the number of tragic stories hitting our headlines in recent days and months? Relatively young people falling down dead in an instant. War suddenly coming to the streets in Europe once again. Poverty, anxiety, gripping and then ending people's lives in a split second. Your life could be over and God's judgment will prevail. Or you will live to see the final judgment that still lies ahead for this world. No one could stand on Noah's day. No one will be able to stand on the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry about Putin or our own ungodly leaders and what they look at while they sit in the benches of the House of Commons. Don't worry about the war criminals or the pedophiles or anyone else. God will shut the door on them whenever he wishes. What about you? Are you ready for the judgment? Have you by faith taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to see him face to face? One day God's judgment will prevail in this world again. Not by water but by the fiery presence of the Lord Jesus himself. Are you ready for that day to come? And if you're a Christian here this morning with a concern as we all should have for our unsaved neighbours and family members. Notice, friends, it's not up to us to shut the door on that neighbour, that child, that friend who hasn't yet bowed the knee to Christ. We don't have to just give up and quit and think, well, I've prayed for so many years. I've spoken to them so many times. There's no point anymore. No, no, no. Don't you shut the door. You leave it to God to shut the door. As long as they still have breath in their bodies, you have an opportunity to do what Noah did. To warn them, to proclaim to them the judgment that is coming. That's what we are to do as Noah did. We're to keep on being witnesses. It's not too late as long as someone has breath in their bodies. But sooner or later, friends, God's judgment will prevail. And so may that motivate us in our witness and in our prayers and in our corporate witness for the world around us. God's judgment prevails. Thirdly, and more briefly as we close, we've seen God's creation preserved, his judgment prevails. Thirdly, and finally, we see that God remembers his promise. God remembers his promise. Look how the chapter begins. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. A hundred years before the flood came, God promised grace and mercy to Noah. 
a hundred years later, God keeps his promise. And once again, friends, all through this passage, Noah's obedience is emphasized to us. If you look at verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 9, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with God, as, or sorry, with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16, they went in as God had commanded him. Noah's faith, he keeps on demonstrating his faith over and over again. And the greatest act of faith of all was to actually go into that ark. Calvin says, Noah had already sustained during 100 years the greatest and most ferocious assaults on his faith. And the invincible combatant had achieved memorable victories. But, he says, the most severe test of faith of all was to bid farewell to the world, to renounce society and to bury himself in the ark. To bury himself in the ark. Noah, friends, had to, in a sense, die Die to logic, die to popular opinion, die to the world he knew. And trust that God, by his grace, would cause him to live and to see a world made new. But God kept his promise. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And when the Bible speaks of God remembering, again, it's not that he had forgotten in the way that you and I forget. We've sort of ruined the meaning of the word remember compared to what it means biblically. It's not like God was watching the world fill with water and then he says, oh yeah, Noah, must keep an eye on him. It's nothing like that. When God remembers, he acts according to his promises. And from the, and from the moment Noah's feet and the feet of his wife and the feet of his family members set foot on the ark's gangway, God protected them and was gracious to them. God's grace found Noah in the flood. Noah believed and acted on his faith, doing what was pleasing and right in God's sight. And one day eventually, Noah would walk back out of the ark again. And Christians, make no mistake. We're going to think much more about this this evening, so do come back to hear it. But God is remembering you today. He sees the world in which we live. He sees the wicked laws our nation passes. He sees the thoughtless, material-minded culture in which we live. He sees the pressures on us to conform, uh, to, uh, to grapple with the temptations that we face. But if Christ is your refuge, as the ark was the refuge for Noah, then you need not be discouraged. You don't need to be afraid. Noah had to die to the world he knew. To follow Christ is to die to our world. To die to the world's myths and nonsense about where we came from and about identity and about living our best life. And to live instead for the glory of God in obedience to his word and faith for the world that he will bring. And it is hard and it is costly and it is difficult, but at least we won't be the last people on earth doing it like Noah and his family were. And we know too that God will remember us as he remembered Noah. And indeed as he remembered his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, like Noah, found himself surrounded in the darkness of God's judgment. 
But unlike Noah, God's judgment rained down upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Noah was sheltered from God's judgment. Jesus Christ had to bear God's judgment and receive the punishment that our sin deserved. Jesus, like Noah, had to go into a tomb, except Jesus went into a literal tomb, dead. But yet three days later, he rose again. And by faith in him, friends, we will die and yet we will live and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth that he will bring with him when he comes. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is the message we must proclaim to this lost and dying world before the judgment comes. We don't ever have to shut the door on anyone as long as they have breath in their bodies, but we must urge them to come to Christ and take refuge in him before it is too late. One day God's judgment will prevail on this world once more. Where will you be when that happens? Will you be out in the world, swallowed up in the storm? Or will you be taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, sheltered from the storm and looking forward to the world that lies ahead? Amen.